It's Monday, April the 5th, 2021. More than 620 million vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Cha, the Economist Science Correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, the Health Policy Editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it happens. Today, we'll discuss how vaccines can be distributed fairly. Many rich countries are vaccinating quickly. How important is it that they share their supplies with the rest of the world? Natasha, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. I've been busy this week uh, looking into something called COVAX, which is a scheme to distribute vaccines equally to everyone. Well, we'll be talking much more about COVAX in this episode. In fact, Seth Berkeley is one of our interviewees. He's head of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and he helped set up COVAX. We'll also hear from John Nkengasong, director of the Africa Centres for Disease Control and Prevention. Joining us on the podcast this week is Ed Carr. He's the deputy editor at The Economist, and he also oversees the paper's COVID coverage. Hi, Ed. How was your Easter? Hi, it's great. Thanks, Alec. We have a, a Polish tradition in our house where we paint eggs with all sorts of designs, and my painting is really, really quite bad. Even so, that's always the high point. How lovely. Well, look, can I do a, a crank gear change from Easter to asking you to think about the topic of this podcast, which is, in one sentence, what would you say is the biggest challenge in distributing vaccines fairly around the world? Well, I think it's the conflicting sort of interest. And for the planet as a whole, it's in the interest to try and save as many lives as possible. And that means the vaccine has to go to where it's most needed. But from the point of view of each government, they feel a responsibility towards their own people and they want to get their people vaccinated first. So the question is, how do you square the interest of the planet with the interest of each government? And it's a really, really hard problem. Natasha, what about you? In one sentence, what's the biggest challenge in distributing vaccines fairly? Well, the biggest problem right now for global distribution is that India has decided to retain doses for its own use domestically. And it's a big exporter. And so if it stops exporting, then that's going to have a real big impact on how we get vaccines around the world. Well, we're going to come back to all of those points uh, a bit more in the rest of the show. The COVID-19 pandemic won't be over until it's under control everywhere in the world. That means vaccinating as much of the world as possible, as fast as possible. One mechanism to supply vaccines to countries that might otherwise struggle to get hold of them is called COVAX. Set up last year, this vaccine-buying club now contains 192 countries. Each member has been promised enough jabs to vaccinate 20% of its citizens. The first delivery of COVAX jabs was made on February the 24th. 600,000 doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine arrived in Ghana. One of those who helped to set up COVAX is Seth Berkeley, head of Gavi, a vaccine financing agency. Natasha, you've been talking to Seth. Yes, I have. I've known him for a long time. He works on making sure that vaccines get to the poorest countries in the world. But 
He's also one of the linchpins now behind this effort called COVAX, you've just explained. And he began to think about how to distribute any COVID vaccines that might emerge actually in January 2020. And that was with someone called Richard Hatchett, who's the head of another global vaccine group called CEPI. They do R&D on vaccines. And both of these people worried that rich countries would essentially monopolise the supply of vaccines. So that's how COVAX started. Well, when we realised that COVID-19 was going to spread globally, we traditionally would think about the poor countries because that's where we work and thinking about getting vaccines to them. But we realised, in fact, it would need to be vaccines for everywhere. So the idea of COVAX was to try to create a way for poor countries to have access through donor funds, but then for upper middle income and high income countries, self-financing countries to be able to purchase doses as well. The goal was to try to get at least 2 billion doses for 2021 to cover the high-risk groups in each country. And your high-risk groups would be sort of the elderly and hospital workers? Well, it, it, it obviously will depend a little bit on the countries. But in general, the first group is to try to make sure that all health workers are covered. And um, then afterwards, the elderly, those with comorbidities. And then it gets to a separation in places like the U.S., for example. There were big outbreaks in prisons and meatpacking plants. But in developing countries, it might be in urban slums or refugee camps. So it really is going to require on you know, the local epidemiology and, and, and the situation there. What what do you think you have achieved so far? Well, the first thing we, I think, have successfully done is try to get equitable allocation into the global discussion. And that's a really important part, because when we started and we said, you're only safe if everyone is safe, people were, well, no, I'm not really, I don't believe that, or I don't think that's important. But as the new variants appeared, people began to realize that if there are large parts of the world where there is no vaccination, where viruses is uh, moving unstopped in any way, shape, or form, then you're likely to have these types of mutations. And of course, it threatens everybody. The second thing we had hoped to do was reduce uh, bilateral engagement on this. And, and I don't think we did that very well. I think with the vaccine panics that come with the, um, the variants, uh, people are going ahead and pursuing bilateral deals, which is just a very inefficient way to uh, buy vaccines. And then the third, of course, is making sure that countries are ready for these vaccines, making sure the delivery systems, the regulatory systems, the cold chain are all in place so that they can roll out vaccines successfully. What will success look like for you this year? Well, our hope is by the end of the year that all countries that uh, want access to vaccines have access to vaccines, that we also reach out to humanitarian situations where um, there may be more difficulties in obtaining access, and that we get to a point where the disease is is not such an acute problem. Uh, Obviously, it may be with the new variants. It may be that we need to go to higher uh, uh, coverage of populations, or we need to swap vaccines or do boosters. We just don't know that yet. But we really want to take the world back towards some type of normality by the end of this year. Ed, can I start with you? Just take us a step back for a second. Why do we need something like COVAX? Before the vaccines had arrived, 
And before you got into the what was obviously going to be a frenzy to try and secure supplies in which the kind of worst side of everybody's nature would emerge, it was as if the world sat down to try and do something sensible. So COVAX is an attempt by the world to do the best it can before vaccines are right there in front of people's faces and they feel irresistibly drawn to them. And Natasha, Seth said in his conversation with you that COVAX was unprecedented. It's it's a very big enterprise that's not been tried before. I mean, just give us a, a sense of how unprecedented it is. Well, in the 2009 swine flu epidemic, we had a situation where a small number of rich countries had vaccines and they just wouldn't export them. And Richard Hatchett, who I mentioned earlier from CEPI, he was working in the White House during those days. And he remembers how fraught, politically fraught, the question was of vaccine exports. And so that was their sort of impetus to try and get ahead of the problem and to create a structure that would at least try to tackle some of these issues. Do you think that COVAX is working right now? It's early days. COVAX isn't working right now because it hasn't got any doses to deliver. And it has been very successful in setting up um, the structures to distribute vaccines, but it's only managed to distribute about 32 million so far. And now India has decided to retain its vaccines for domestic use. And India at the moment is supplying 86% of what COVAX is distributing. And if you kind of look back and you sort of say, well, why are they getting most of their doses just from this one supplier? The answer is that in the early days of COVAX, uh, they didn't quite have enough money, so they couldn't compete to get the early AstraZeneca doses they wanted from other sites. So a lot of it is to do with the fact it wasn't quite funded quickly enough. Now, when India starts to export vaccine again, COVAX will start working again. Ed, I mean, COVAX is a very complicated setup. It's global. They're, they're, we're talking about billions of vaccine doses now and, and, and in the future. Are the troubles we're seeing with it right now just teething problems? No, I think they're more fundamental than that because they are the idealism COVAX meeting the reality of governments feeling under pressure. And uh, as Natasha said, you know, you had two possible supplies for COVAX. One was what they were able to order. Well, that came a bit late. The other was the surplus vaccines from rich countries who massively overordered because they had no idea which of the many possible vaccines would turn out to work. Well, you know, there is a big supply. The United States has got plenty of vaccine and some of it sitting around unused. But just as, as the US was beginning to talk about releasing some of its supplies of vaccines at the end of last year, the variants popped up. And so people started to get worried again about letting stuff go. So I think you're in a really tricky position now where it always seems worth hanging on for, for countries. Like even the UK, which is far ahead, has not exported any any vaccine at all. And I, I think this is going to become more of a problem. I certainly think there's a, there's a moral case for releasing vaccine right now. I think there's a strong moral case for countries to say when they're going to donate and how much. That's really important uh, for planning. And at the moment, rich countries are saying, yes, we will. Um, we haven't decided when. And that's just not good enough. And it's not just Britain and America. It's Europe. It's Canada. It's all these rich countries that have overordered doses. They do have a moral responsibility, not only to say that they will donate, to say 
who they will donate to. Because if some of these countries donate it as a sort of political donation to a country that they just want to be nice to, that's not really addressing the issue of global equity or trying to get this vaccine distributed all around the world and suppress the virus. It's it's trying to curry favour, and that's not the same thing. There's actually just outside COVAX, though. COVAX is going to, if it works, provide 20% of of, of uh, the vaccines necessary for the member countries. That's the aim. What are countries also doing beyond that to sort of supplement uh, their own attempts to get vaccines? I mean, there are deals being made independently, right? Yes, they are doing deals. But let me just come back to one point in your question. Actually, COVAX may be able to do 27% this year. They've managed to do deals for that much vaccine now, so they can do much better, hopefully. That will depend if they get the vaccine supplies. And of course, everybody has a problem with that. In terms of what's going on beyond that, we have a blizzard of bilateral deals. And that's not necessarily wrong, because even if COVAX can provide 30%, ultimately, countries are going to need more than that. I mean, some of the vaccines that have been distributed quite widely, like the Chinese vaccines, they actually can't be distributed through COVAX at the moment, because they haven't actually had an authorization through the World Health Organization. Natasha, do you think, in summary, is COVAX on track to work? It's not at the moment, but it will work uh, to a certain extent this year. It will certainly get enough vaccine out to healthcare workers all around the world. And beyond that, I don't know how close it will get to the 20 or 27% target, but it will get a lot of vaccine out in a sort of fairly equal fashion. And then more broadly, I would just say that the mechanism it's created is actually a way of pooling demand from lots of small countries and supporting the development of a medicine and the distribution. And so the COVAX facility could be used to perhaps even fund a variant vaccine down the line or perhaps some other form of medicine that you know lots of countries want. Ed, what's your sort of thinking about whether COVAX is going to work or not? I guess my hope is that COVAX will see us through to the point where the production of vaccines starts to get fast enough to mean there's enough to go around and this sort of terrible bottleneck that we're, we're living through at the moment becomes less pressing. My fear, however, is that the delay will cost a lot of lives. And one thing's very clear from the modelling, it makes a huge difference to how many people eventually die, which order the vaccines that are delivered. And my worry is that a lot of people are going to die who needn't have died if this had been better handled. Natasha, Ed, thank you both very much. To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, you'll need to subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash thejabpod. A story that uh, we've been covering recently is the conundrum of Europe. The European Union is rich and scientifically advanced. It's got excellent healthcare and welfare systems and a political consensus that is uh, aimed quite strongly towards looking after its citizens. But during the pandemic, it seems to have stumbled, not least over vaccinations. To read that coverage, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash thejabpod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. COVAX has secured at least 2 billion doses of vaccine. It's an impressive figure, but it's not enough to meet the demands of its members. Difficult decisions will have to be made about which countries to prioritise. 
My name is uh, Sondre Solstad, and I'm a data journalist at The Economist. Sondre has been digging into some of the data that could help COVAX to work out which countries to place at the top of the queue. So far, COVAX has shipped about 32 million COVID-19 vaccine doses to 70 countries. In their most recent plan, they detail shipments of about 318 million doses in the first half of this year. The largest shipments are scheduled for India, Pakistan, and Nigeria. Uh, These plans may, however, change and probably will have to if they are to reach their goal of 2 billion doses by the end of 2021. In terms of sources, the only planned shipments so far are of the AstraZeneca and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines, though the organization also has deals with Johnson & Johnson, Novavax, and Sanofi. China's Sinopharm filed an application to be included in January, but so far the country has only pledged 20 million doses to COVAX, or about 1% of the AM for this year. That is not to say that the Chinese vaccines are not exported. It's just that such agreements have been negotiated directly with developing countries rather than through COVAX so far. What factors is COVAX going to be taking into account when working out where to distribute its vaccines? When thinking about which countries need vaccines the most, I think there are two big questions. Where are infections most likely to happen? That is, which places have big outbreaks? And second, where are people more or less vulnerable to COVID-19? In some ways, the second question is the easier one to answer. The single most important predictor of whether someone dies from COVID-19 is their age. This suggests that places with younger populations are less vulnerable to the virus. But we can get much more specific. We know the approximate infection fatality rate, the share of infected that die, by age and gender. We also know the age and gender distribution of the world's countries, as this is tracked by the United Nations. So how would you put all these factors together to try and understand Um, where the vaccine should go. So what we've come up with is something we call country's demography-adjusted infection fatality rate. Okay, that's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what that means is that the probability that a randomly selected person from a given country would die if they were infected with COVID. Okay, and so that means you can directly compare different countries, even though they might have different population demographics and different, you know, types of pandemic, essentially. That is essentially what you could do. Um, and what we find is that the, uh, this number or this rate varies widely. Uh, the most vulnerable country in the world by this metric is Japan, where we would expect about 1.3% to die if infected, and Italy, where we would expect 1.1% to do so. And that's purely because of their age. Those countries are particularly old. Yes, they have a lot of very old people, which makes them vulnerable to, to the virus. Now, by contrast, countries with younger populations uh, are much less vulnerable. For instance, the United States has such a rate of 0.7%, China 0.5%, and India 0.3%. And what's the country with the the lowest uh, infection fatality rate, according to your measure? Least vulnerable of all would be Uganda, where the median age is 17 years, um, and the expected IFR just 0.1%, or less than one-tenth of that of Japan. Okay, so that's one side of it. But of course, different countries have had different responses to the pandemic as well. So that must affect things too. Yes, these numbers are not the full story, because of course, healthcare varies a lot as well, and is typically poor in poor countries. And if many people are infected at the same time, then that impacts care as well. And you may see death rates climb. And what about the current scale of the outbreaks? This is a much harder question. Uh, My view on this is that case and death counts for most countries are essentially misleading because they simply reflect differences in testing and in the case of developing countries are just massive understatements of what is going on. 
One metrics which I do have faith in is overall death counts and excess deaths. Now, excess deaths is comparing the number of deaths in a country to what you would expect based on deaths in years past. Here at The Economist, we've been tracking this as best we can for over a year now and have data for about 80 countries. But 80 countries are not all countries, and in some regions, the data is much less readily available. For instance, in sub-Saharan Africa, we only have data for one country, South Africa. There, it implies excess deaths of 220 per 100,000 population, the 10th worst in the world, despite a relatively young population. Adjusting for demography, that makes for an outbreak that is four times worse than Britain's, one of the hardest hit countries in Europe. It could be that we have this sort of hidden pandemic in developing countries, where the lack of data on, through tests and diagnosed cases makes us think that they've had a relatively uh, easy time in this pandemic. And I think looking into excess deaths is the way to figure out if that is the case or if they're actually worse off than what people seem to believe. Ed, how should countries balance the questions of morality and self-interest when accessing vaccine supplies? Well, I think the, the morality is, imagine you haven't been born uh, you're going to appear in the earth and you don't know which country you're going to appear in, how old you're going to be. And so you sort of say, well, how would I ideally allocate vaccine knowing I could pop up in any in any country, in any state? And that would lead you to allocate vaccine to where it's most needed. But there are some wrinkles in that. And one of them is the prevalence of the disease in, in any particular country. So Europe is going through a very nasty wave of cases at the moment. The vaccine is more valuable in Europe than it is in Australia, uh, where they have very few cases. They had an outbreak in Brisbane that they've shut down very recently. But basically, Australia's hardly got any disease. And there's one other extra complicating factor, I think, which is that much as many people decry vaccine nationalism, the initial impulse to develop vaccines that you saw in the United States, for example, with warp speed, was a, a nationalistic impulse. And it's one that because these vaccines have been invented, they can be used around the world. I think if you put all that together, you end up with a really, really complicated picture where you have the ideal trying to deal with the world as it is. And the world as it is, is one where people who make vaccines, whether they're rich countries or not, if they see they've got a really pressing need, as India does now, are going to break contract. I guess if you had to ask me uh, what I would like, I'd like to see people sticking to contracts. Because once you start to abandon contracts, you're completely at sea. And if everybody starts breaking contracts, then the total supply of vaccines available in the world will start to go down. And that really is a bad outcome. One of the big problems I have is that America's decided to keep itself to itself when it comes to global vaccine making and exporting. And the EU has been much more open with the way it's exported vaccines, the supplies that are needed to export vaccines around the world are traded much more freely. And what you're seeing in America is they're being not only holding on to vaccine, they're being really difficult about exporting the sort of the equipment that we need to make vaccines. And it's all very well saying, oh, we've got to look after our own population first. But there is a kind of global thing happening here. And I do strongly feel that America and also Britain actually need to do much more to ease the flow of vaccines around the world. 
Well, I mean, just on that point, uh, America and Britain, neither, neither country has exported any, any of the vaccines that it's made. And on the flip side of that, they've both been doing very, very well with their vaccinations. But, well, I mean, you've got to ask yourself, is it right that we should be vaccinating 30-year-olds in Britain and America before healthcare workers on the other side of the world. And then, you know, just let's look at some of the decisions that are being taken. America has loaned 4 million doses of vaccines. Well, one of the countries they've loaned to is Canada, the last place that needs extra vaccine. Look at Britain, for example. It's wanting to up its vaccine supply in the face of actually quite large quantities of vaccine. It's stalking the Serum Institute. They've already had about four or five million doses out of the Serum Institute, and they're looking for more. And I can't see any moral grounds for taking vaccine out of the Serum Institute, which is what is needed to supply COVAX. And in fact, many countries have done bilateral deals with India that have essentially pushed COVAX further down the queue for deliveries. Even middle-income and low-income countries have been doing it, South Africa, many other countries, Saudi Arabia. Ed, can I just pick up on the issue of contracts uh, with you? Um, the European Union went into its contract and sort of didn't put any conditions on exports, um, assuming that people would uh, abide by contracts. And of course, it's it's been stung a little bit because vaccines made in the EU have been exported all over the place and the EU says that it doesn't have enough. Um, and, and it's now trying to sort of put in controls around what um, vaccine manufacturing plants in the EU can actually give to other places. I just wonder, is this the kind of geopolitical nastiness and worry we're going to see more of? Yes, quite possibly. Uh, but even that's more complicated, I, I think, than, than many people imagine. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why the EU is a site for so much vaccine manufacturing is precisely because it was judged to be open for trade. One of the reasons if you wanted to get vaccine, you wouldn't rely on American factories. It was pretty obvious that America was not going to be exporting vaccines. So for America not to export vaccines when everyone assumed it wouldn't is one thing. For the European Union to turn around and say, well, actually, we've changed our mind. Or for the Serum Institute to break its contract is another thing. Now, I agree with Natasha that the the case in the United States and, and Britain for beginning to supply vaccine to the rest of the world is a really powerful one. The really tricky cases are, are places like the EU and India, which have vaccine manufacturing that need it right now for their own people because there's a wave of infections, and yet they have these contracts. And I think you have this really sort of knotty moral problem. So there was an example of this where uh, Italy blocked exports to Australia. Italy, which has uh, cases going up, Australia, which has almost no cases. I think that was a, a, a moral decision. Um, and Australia didn't really complain. But if Italy does that a few more times, I can assure you that Australia will start getting very cross indeed. So this is a really, really difficult problem. And the reason I fall back on contracts is I can't think of any other way of trying to keep some order. And my real fear here is that everyone gets so cross with everybody else that the total supply of vaccines starts to fall because supply chains start to break. And that's the worst outcome of all for the world, I think. So it seems as if you, you can be selfish with vaccines as long as you declare to the world beforehand that you're going to be. <laughs> that's, that's very cynical, but yeah, absolutely. Well, you can if you're a big country like America and you can be self-reliant. And that that's one of the messages there that I think other countries are picking up on is that you can do what you like if you're self-reliant on vaccines. Natasha, Ed, thank you both very much. 
Africa appears to have been less badly affected by COVID-19 than places like America and Europe. This may be because of the continent's relatively young population. But as Sondre mentioned, COVID cases and deaths in Africa may also be being undercounted. In terms of vaccinations, so far only half a percent of the continent's population has had a jab. If by the end of 2022, we have not vaccinated at least 60% of our population, then we have to begin to tweak our strategy at a continental level as to how to live with this virus, because it would have entrenched itself, embedded itself on the continent. John Nkengasong is the director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We have to do three things. One is vaccinate at speed. Okay, because uh, there is no room for vaccination incremental, otherwise you will not meet the target by the end of 2022. And I'm very uh, clear with, with that. Second is that we have to use a combination of vaccines to achieve our goal. Uh, no single vaccine will be uh, the only vaccine that uh, is a game changer. We have AstraZeneca vaccines that the COVAX facility is being introduced to build. We are working with uh, Johnson & Johnson. Some countries are receiving the Pfizer vaccines, like Rwanda or Moderna, and we hope that that will continue. We also know that on the continent, uh, the Chinese have been working bilaterally with their Sinopharm and Sinovac vaccines in multiple countries. And the Russians have also been working in engaging bilaterally in several countries with the Sponic 5 vaccine. Um, you mentioned COVAX just now. Um, so COVAX uh, has started shipping to the continent, um, but it won't provide anywhere near enough. Can you explain wh why it's been necessary to have these bilateral agreements and, and separate agreements to supply vaccines to countries? We are in an emergency, okay? COVAX has always been very clear that they will support up to 20% of the vaccines that are required for the continent of Africa. And recently we heard that they are going to move that to about 25%. But that is still not going to be enough for us to cover the 60% target. So it means that we have to find supplementary options to get us to 60%, i.e. working with the African Vaccine Acquisition Task Team that President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa put together when he was chair of the African Union so that we can also uh, work with companies to secure vaccines that are funded with African-owned resources. You've warned against Africa becoming the COVID continent. And I just want to understand what you meant by that. So what I mean by this is several things. One is that developed world will finish, do their vaccination by hopefully by September, the developed world will be done with vaccination it is absolutely clear in my mind that they will begin to impose travel uh, requirements for uh, COVID vaccine certificates. And if you do not have that, it will become very difficult for you to travel as an African. And then, of course, that will have an impact on our own economies, uh, tourism. Second thing is that if we do not vaccinate at scale, COVID becomes endemic on the continent. And that is the, the last thing you want to see in Africa is endemicity of COVID-19, where the North America, potentially Southern America, Asia and Europe would have finished vaccinating. And they'll be focusing on, on mopping up exercises where they look at outbreaks here and there, they rush through, squash it, but we'll be dealing with a large-scale pandemic still raging on the continent. Ed, how hard has Africa been hit by COVID? I think it's really hard to say. As Sandra said, the death numbers are, are not very clear. The statistics are really poor. 
there's anecdotal evidence that, that Africa's done perhaps better than people expected. Is that right, Natasha? What do you think? Well, Sandra and I have a sort of disagreement about this. John Nkengasong himself um, would agree that Africa has been hit less hard as a continent, with some exceptions, obviously, South Africa and a few other places. And, um, you know, I've spoken to epidemiologists in South Africa who agrees with this and has pointed out that his colleagues just don't see people turning up in large numbers with respiratory illnesses, as they would expect. And he also points out that even though there is a lack of data and a lack of monitoring, he says that when you do do tests, they typically give a positive rate far below 10%. These are lots of countries with lots of very young people. Nigeria, half of the people in the country are, are below the age of 18. So I think we need to take seriously the possibility that really Africa is not being hit as hard. And the reason I say that is because that has an implication for how we think about equity and allocation and planning beyond the 20-25% that maybe COVAX is delivering. I would say one thing, though, which is that that even if we're not clear exactly how hard the disease is, is hitting Africa, I think it's, it is pretty clear that sub-Saharan Africa has a, a sort of economic long COVID uh, looking ahead for a number of reasons. It doesn't have the capacity to stimulate the economy in the way the rich world does. Uh, its tourism industry is, is wrecked. It's going to be a long time before it gets vaccines. Schools have shut down. You know, all of these things are really bad for the economies of Africa. And it's no accident that the IMF has something like half of the economies of sub-Saharan Africa in debt distress or pretty near, which means they're going to struggle to pay their debts. Um, in, in our conversation with him, John Nkengasong says that he doesn't want to see COVID becoming endemic in Africa. Um, Ed, is that a feasible goal? I, I personally don't think so. I think endemicity is a probability for this disease around the world, and it'll be degrees, degrees of it, really. But I suppose one of the things that's bothering him is that if the continent is relatively less vaccinated, that may have an impact on things like trade and tourism. You know, how many people are going to want to travel to the continent? If people are less well vaccinated, there might be some sort of fear that it's kind of still widespread. Um, just to finish up, it'd be interesting to hear from you, Natasha, about the supply of vaccines to to the continent. I mean, obviously, COVAX and individual partnerships and things will, will, will bring vaccines to the countries there over the next few years. But that's vaccines from outside the continent, essentially, made elsewhere. Um, I mean, John Kengasong has said that he wants to see vaccine supply, vaccine manufacturing happening much more on the continent itself. This is an opportunity to build capacity in those areas. What can you say about whether that's likely to happen or not? So the outbreak has highlighted the continent's reliance on imported vaccine, and particularly from India, which is actually not a particularly rich and wealthy country. And so a lot of Africans are now saying to themselves, why can't we make vaccine? And the answer is, yes, you absolutely can. There's lots of discussions about ramping up vaccine making capacity on the continent. South Africa's already made an investment. There are facilities for things like fill and finish that could be expanded in various places. Certainly Senegal and Egypt is a place you could expand. And What's going to happen in April is there's going to be um, a big virtual conference being run by the African Union and the African CDC. 
on this very topic. And I have a feeling this is really going to happen because they've got a big market for childhood vaccines anyway. So why don't they supply these on a routine basis? And then they can also have the ability to uh, scale up in the case of pandemics. And do you think that the more that, that mRNA vaccines become standard, that actually that might be a technology that's kind of easier to move around the world and to do at, at smaller scale, meaning that actually it makes sense to make vaccines closer to the markets where they're, where they're being used? I would like to see from this vaccine making conference, I'd like to see them invest in tried and trusted vaccine making facilities, maybe your traditional inactivated vaccines and protein subunits. But why not go also to the sort of latest technology? And it would be amazing if Africa could start investing in an mRNA vaccine making facility on its own continent even just starting to do some R&D would be a start. So I think that, yes, this is the platform of the future. And if the African Union wants to be more ambitious, then that's what it's going to need to invest in. I think uh, our learned colleague, Oliver Morton, has called them mRNA vaccine microbreweries. <laughs> isn't, isn't that his, his dream? His dream. I was going to say, it says a lot about his, his private hobbies. <laughs> All right, Natasha, Ed, thank you both very much. Now, both of you, just before we go, have you seen anything this week that you'd like to share? Ed, let me start with you. Well, I was actually struck by a, a survey that looked at, at which vaccine people would most like to take according to whether they were you know, really committed to being vaccinated, unsure or really against it. And those who wanted to be vaccinated in the US were pretty indifferent between the Moderna, Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson vaccine. But those who were unsure or didn't want to be vaccinated much preferred Johnson & Johnson. Uh, and I, I wonder why that is. Is it because the brand is trusted, they're familiar with it? Maybe it's, it's just of, because you know, it's just one injection as opposed to two? It could Few, be one injection. Fewer injections. But it does, it does suggest that if you want to try and talk around some vaccine-hesitant people, you want to push that Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine, I think. Um, as an unvaccinated person, I'll have any. Does, I have no preference <laughs> at all, <laughs> all of them. Um, Natasha, how about you? Oh, well, I was interested in the arrival of the vaccine selfie in Ukraine. Um, so in Ukraine, they have had a really slow distribution of vaccine. And this has been due to vaccine hesitancy. Um, and so the Ministry of Health is now opening vaccinations to media influencers. So if you have a public persona, whether you're a pop star or an athlete or a journalist even, you can essentially get the vaccine. But the requirement is you have to share your selfie on social media. So what, this is to persuade other people to have the vaccine as well, because exactly there, there's some hesitancy going on. Okay, interesting. Interesting. So if you were in the Ukraine, you see, Alok, you could be what um, vaccine vaccinated would I get? on this. What options would I have in the Ukraine? I have to look this up. <laughs> <laughs> Natasha, Ed, thank you both very much indeed. Thanks, Alok. Thank you. That's all from us. The show's producers are Hannah Mourinho and Duncan Barber. The sound designer is Nico Rofast and the editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more on The Jab next week when we'll focus on people who are hesitant to take COVID vaccines. 